It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was good! But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Armenians became a sort of threat to the Ottoman rulers. They rounded all of the intellectuals, all of the potential community leaders, and executed them or exiled them. They disarmed the men, took their weapons, took their arms, and sent them to labor camps and to eventual death. What was left were the elderly women and children they set them on marches. These were death marches, so they were sent to their deaths. So basically, it is a government eradicating its own people. I think people find it so strange, right? It's been over a hundred years. What's the big deal? Get over it. But I don't think people realize that it's a lived experience for all of us. I'm Chris Garcia, and this is Finding Rafi, a 10-part series from iHeartRadio and Fatherly in partnership with Rococo Punch about the life, philosophy, and the work of Rafi, the man behind the music. Rafi never set out to make music for kids. A year before his first children's album came out, he released this instrumental honoring his roots. It's called Impressions of Armenia. 
He wrote it before the fall of the Soviet Union after spending three weeks in Armenia with his brother and sister, an invitation from the government because of their father's renowned photography career. When we went, we were the privileged ones getting to see it in a very unique way because some of the resorts that we went to and stayed at, the people didn't even know they existed. It was very much a closed society in the Soviet Union era. So it was very moving and heartbreaking in some ways and promising in other ways. You know, it was just a lot to process emotionally. Impressions of Armenia is a song that tells the story of a homeland Rafi's never fully known, of a country and a people who survived the fall of empires, a genocide, and diaspora. Rafi was born in Egypt and raised in Canada, but the history of his Armenian ancestors flows through him. He may not include it explicitly in his music, but like so many Armenian artists, that legacy has shaped his life and his work. It was 1938 in Cairo. The wedding of 17-year-old King Farouk of Egypt was the event of the decade, complete with a procession of flowered parade floats, twinkling lights displayed all over the royal palace, and a glamorous Parisian wedding gown for the king's 16-year-old bride, Queen Farida. And among the celebration's performers was a young accordionist, Ardo Kavukian, Rafi's father. My father was uh, quite a musician. He played uh, two or three instruments, uh, primarily the accordion, which is what I heard him playing while we were growing up and in family gatherings and parties. Uh, we would always urge him to take out his big red accordion. Ardo's accordion playing led him to Lucy Papazian, the two met at another wedding where Ardo was performing and where Ardo danced only with Lucy. A few months later, they married. Five years later, in 1948, Rafi Kavukian was born in Cairo, Egypt. Art, music, and literature were highly valued by the Kavukians, so they named their second son after one of Lucy's favorite Armenian authors, a patriotic novelist and poet who used the pen name Rafi. Rafi Kavukian grew up in Cairo in the 1950s. He was the middle kid between his older brother Onig and his younger sister Ani. Onig and Rafi shared a room with their grandmother in the family's three-bedroom apartment. It was a place where you could find hidden chocolates in the dining room, where the Armenian rugs were perfect for playing marbles, and where pickled cucumbers were ready for snacking in the kitchen. And there was also the music. I think we used to hear on our family stereo set, hi-fi we used to call it, the music we were listening to in the 50s, which were my formative years, were um, pop music of the time from Europe and from all over. And uh, these songs were melodic. Melody, to me, is uh, something that's just indispensable when it comes to music making. So it's just interesting to remember that as a formative element from my Cairo years and my Armenian family with the rugs and the hi-fi. But not all of Rafi's childhood memories were heartwarming. I was mocked and humiliated at times, and I was hit, and I, I couldn't square that with the fact that I knew I was loved. So why didn't I feel respected for who I felt I was? In his autobiography, Rafi writes that a sharp slap in the face or a snide remark from his mother and father 
were at odds with the warmth of their hugs and compliments. That when company came around, his parents would make him perform a song or a poem for their guests, expecting him to do it without complaint and without error. If Rafi did well, he was praised. If not, his embarrassment and shame were swept aside with a comment about doing better next time. That sense of shame and disrespect, Rafi would carry that for years. He would eventually process it and form a philosophy around how kids should be treated, one that's centered around respect. Rafi's parents loomed large in his life, especially his father, Ardo. He ran a photography studio, Studio Kavuk, originally founded by Ardo's father, Ohannes Kavukian. Ardo was skilled at shooting, retouching, and framing photographs, but he was a master portrait artist. He'd work every day, coming home only for a meal and a nap. On Sundays, he took his family to church and the pyramids and always ended the day back at the studio. He also had an impressive client list of dignitaries, like the former king of Egypt and the head of the Armenian church. Ardo and his family were like an Armenian gold standard, an example of what dedication, hard work, and resilience could create, even after a horrific genocide. There were stories of survival, of my family's survival from the uh, massacres of the Ottoman Empire, uh, on both sides of the family, my mother and my father, in infancy, their families survived. The Armenian genocide, planned and perpetrated by Ottoman Turkish authorities, took place between the spring of 1915 and the fall of 1916, and the death toll varies widely. Figures range from 600,000 to as many as 1.2 million ethnic Armenian Christians and that doesn't include the hundreds and thousands of Assyrians and Greeks who were also targeted. By the end of World War I, it's estimated that more than 90% of Armenians in the Ottoman Empire had died. Rafi heard his family's harrowing stories all throughout his childhood. Lucy's father escaped death seven times. He was a building foreman, and the Turkish officials always ended up sparing him so they could use his valuable skills. Ardo's father, Ohanis, was an artist. The night before he, his wife, and his month-old son, Ardo, faced execution, he stayed up drawing a charcoal portrait of the general commanding officer. When the officer saw the sketch, he was so impressed he assigned Ohanis to Aleppo to teach drawing. His entire family was saved, along with nearly 30 people, after Ohanis claimed them all as family members all saved because of his drawing. Isn't that an amazing story, right? Stories of how art saved the day. Do you think your family's trauma leaving Armenia has impacted you? That's too hard a question to answer. Of course it's impacted me. We are products of our experience. So... I've written about this in my autobiography. I've talked about it. I mean, you know, the stories that you grow up with, they're the content that you have to make sense of, and then you decide their role in your emotional landscape. Are those stories going to drive you, or are they going to enrich your sense of who you feel you are and 
what you feel is possible for you. This is not where I expected to end up when I started listening to Rafi's music. Genocide and trauma. Could anything be further away from the image we have of the guy who sings about baby whales and banana phones? I began to realize the profound empathy I registered in his music came from a really deep place. Perhaps without these stories, Rafi wouldn't be Rafi. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and Vlastar on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Jean, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby Award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose, 
I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's the generation who lived the trauma, and then there are the generations who are descendants of those who were traumatized. They didn't live the trauma, but they carry this trauma. This is Dr. Shushan Karapetian. She's the deputy director of the University of Southern California's Institute of Armenian Studies. I think it's, it's not difficult to imagine the kind of trauma of surviving, uh, the trauma of rebuilding, um, of being in an environment where you're not sure you're welcome, of your family being torn apart, of maybe missing important family members, uh, language issues, cultural issues, this kind of constant upheaval. Each family dealt with the trauma of the genocide in its own way. Rafi's family faced it head-on, sharing their story from generation to generation, while others did the opposite. There were groups who completely shut down, and their method of dealing with this was to just eradicate the memory and, and kind of disassociate there were those who stayed in a stage of anger, and there were those who talked about it nonstop. There are two kinds of survivors. The survivors who write memoirs, who have voluminous stories that they want to share. And then there are survivors like my grandparents, who shared almost nothing. This is Chris Bojalian. He's an Armenian-American author who's written more than 20 books, including Midwives, The Flight Attendant, and The Sandcastle Girls, which is centered around the Armenian genocide. Chris remembers hearing a story about his aunt and uncle who were starting a chain of yogurt stands in New York City in the 1970s. They were explaining the business plan to my Armenian grandmother. And my Armenian grandmother says, oh, of course, and you'll be serving tongue which is an Armenian or Middle Eastern yogurt drink. And my aunt says, yes. And then my grandmother says to her, oh, well, that's one of the reasons why my parents first took me out of the school. They used the ton to poison the children. And my aunt says, ma, what are you talking about? And of course, my grandmother had never shared with her daughter the story of when, in an Ottoman school, at the start of the Armenian Genocide, some of the children were poisoned with tongue. So little by little, the stories would emerge, but it was a trickle, because the trauma was so deeply ingrained inside them that they kept it to themselves. 
And then, of course, there's the denial. Shushan says part of what keeps the trauma alive is the lack of recognition from the Turkish government. It has offered its condolences for the atrocities while actively denying any plan to systematically wipe out Armenian Christians, despite extensive documentation. This denial has kept the wound open and festering and kind of made the genocide this root paradigm in the Armenian narrative. The, the victimization, the trauma is constantly relived because there is no healing, because there is no opportunity for moving on. Right, because last year was the first time an American president actually called it a genocide. Absolutely. Because of the denial, genocide recognition has become the priority on all Armenian platforms. It's as if we can't move on to anything else. And this is something I tell my students, right? There were Armenians before the genocide. There are Armenians after the genocide. Armenian history doesn't start and end with the genocide. The Armenian experience is not only about the genocide, but it seems like this, I, I mean, again, historian Razmik Panosyan would say it's the equalizer of all Armenians. You know, this people spread across the globe among different countries, different cultures, different experiences, and yet the genocide and the quest for its recognition unites all Armenians. The stories, the silence, the denial. Shushan says that instead of destroying the Armenian people, this shared trauma has resulted in a culture of compassion, resilience, and artistic expression. In a sense, Rafi comes from a long line of artists, writers, and troubadours, all processing the wounds of their ancestors. When you look at what Rafi has done with his life, what so many Armenians have done with their lives in the diaspora, we've made art. I mean, Rafi's music is like the happiest music on the planet. I mean, you know, Banana Phone and, and, you know, Baby Beluga and all of the joy that he has brought to so many children and their parents. If you were to meet Rafi, you wouldn't say, oh my God, grandson of survivors of a cataclysmic genocide who is scarred for life. You'd say, this is one of the nicest, funniest, sweetest, most talented people on the planet. Armenians are just utterly joyful despite the trauma, despite the fact that forever it feels like we have been the forgotten people. So yes, it's important, as the Armenian painter Sarian said, to know one's own homeland. But I like to take that further. I say it's important to know your heritage, of course, but you can also transcend your heritage because you have a duty to your soul as to what your life is about. You know, to me, your people, they should encourage your own growth not to limit it in any way, you know. So I can understand the impulse of Armenians to claim me as one of their own, and of course I am, but not in a way that, you know, constrains me, but hopefully in a way that celebrates my own growth. 
I relate to that so much because there's um there's your culture and it is partially responsible of who you are, but you're your individual soul and your individual person that has no cultural restraints. So in your heart and in your mind and in your spirit, you're your own person. Yes. And so that really resonates with me. Like like both of our uh, families forcibly fled their country. And sometimes I feel too American to be Cuban and too Cuban to be American. And sometimes <laughs> <laughs> you're laughing because I, I take it you understand. <laughs> I do understand. I do. Did you ever have moments like that when you felt stuck between two worlds? For me, it was all about identity. It was a quest for identity. Who am I? Rafi makes a really good point. Our family stories ground us. They honor the past. But if it's the only story we tell about ourselves, they can be stifling. My family story is my story, but it's not my whole story. How do I tell our story to Sunny without putting her in a box? I want her to know her history, but I also want her to break free from any cultural constraints and add her authentic self to our family story. Maybe the best way to honor the past is to allow the story to evolve with each generation. As Rafi grew up, the political climate in Egypt was turning more volatile. Rafi writes that his father considered moving the family to Australia or Brazil. Then Ardo went on a trip to North America. He thought New York City was too big, Montreal had too much snow, but Toronto was just right. My parents had to leave Egypt to find a place where their kids could grow in freedom. And that's what they did. I was certainly appreciative, so thankful that my father had the foresight to see that the family needed to move. It was not easy for us to leave our comfortable lives in Egypt, but uh, it was what needed to happen. So you grow from that. You, you, you appreciate, you know, what's happened and you... You're, you're thrown in with the challenges and the difficulties and the benefits of growing in a new land. And you just do it. So in 1958, with just eight pieces of luggage and his grandmother's prayers, Rafi and his family flew over Europe and crossed the Atlantic for Canada. A world away where the Kabukians would once again start over. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Gene, and the last star on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Gene. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. 
drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is an NAACP and Webby award-winning podcast dedicated to all things mental health, personal development, and all of the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. Here, we have the conversations that help Black women decipher how their past inform who they are today and use that information to decide who they want to be moving forward. We chat about things like how to establish routines that center self-care, what burnout looks and feels like, and defining what aspects of our lives are making us happy and what parts are holding us back. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rafi's life as a 10-year-old Armenian-Egyptian boy in Canada couldn't have been more different than the one he had in Cairo. I was uh, born into a new culture, if you will, in 1958 when we came to Toronto. Everything made an impression from how cold it was and how icy it could get to the fact that Mrs. McKinnon in fourth grade one time gave me her lunch because I'd forgotten my lunch. And that really moved me so much. And, and the fact that, um, you know, teachers in Toronto uh, at, at the school that my brother and I were going to and later my sister, they didn't hit you. Whoa, that was interesting. And of course, you know, 
hockey, ice skating, new skills, new challenges. What will the kids think of me? Oh, my God, you know. And a lot of kids were mean, you know, made fun of my name and played tricks on me. So I had to navigate how life was, which is really no different than what kids have to do today, you know. But it, as you know, challenges and hardships are a test of character and you learn to overcome and you become stronger within. And that's just how you get on with life. Rafi loved singing in the Armenian choir, but he felt out of place at the socials held at the Armenian church. His parents also didn't allow him to do what other Canadian kids were doing, like joining after-school sports or even riding a bike, since Ardo and Lucy didn't let him have his own. He spent a lot of time in his dad's new portrait studio in Toronto. As Ardo meticulously retouched photos, they listened to music. Andy Williams, Peggy Lee, Frank Sinatra. These were moments when Rafi's new world intersected with his old one. I was listening to the songs of uh, Pete Seeger, Bob Dylan, Joan Baez, Joni Mitchell, Gordon Lightfoot, a whole folk uh, music or singer-songwriter, you know, scene. And then Motown, you know, and <laughs> all kinds of other music, diverse music on pop radio. And I said to myself, this is cool. I want to get a guitar. <laughs> <laughs> So I went to a pawn shop and put down my $24 and bought a Kent nylon string guitar. That was my first one. I learned to play guitar and sing. And imagine, you know, my thrill in in finding out that you could teach yourself to do that. As a teenager, Rafi would spend his afternoons listening to records, playing guitar, and singing folk songs with his friends. He also started secretly dating his first love, Deborah Pike, since Ardo had a strict no-dating-while-you're-still-living-in-the-house rule. He was settling into hippie culture, letting his hair grow long, and embracing the flower power of the 60s. I think there was a questioning of authority that was very healthy, and people are starting to think for themselves. So, you know, there was uh, certainly the beginnings of the, you know, the uptake of interest in yoga and Eastern philosophies and so on. So think of it as an expansive experience for those of us wannabe hippies. <laughs> you know, it was, you know, we were starting to think for ourselves. As Rafi attended the University of Toronto, he also started playing gigs around the city. He'd watch other performers too, learning from them and practicing the new techniques he saw on stage. He wanted to see where this music thing would take him. So in 1969, he moved out of Lucy and Ardo's house, dropped out of university after two years, and threw himself into his new career. You know, at first I was a folk singer, singer-songwriter. That's how I started. And I wanted a career kind of like James Taylor. You know, I wanted to play medium-sized halls, not Madison Square Gardens, you know. <laughs> the folk scene in Toronto was vibrant and tight-knit. Rafi's friend and fellow folky, John Lacey, remembers those days well. You'd usually go to a place and you'd do a guest set on a jam night or hootenanny night, it was called back then. And you'd do your thing, and if they liked you enough, they'd hire you, and you'd come back whenever the date was. He and Rafi would often back each other up at gigs. He was doing the same stuff as we all were kind of then. He wrote a few songs, too, but predominantly he was, he was doing covers. Who would you guys cover? John Prine, The Birds, uh, 
Pete Seeger and Joan Baez and uh, Joni Mitchell and Neil Young, that type of thing. Just whatever tune that grabbed you, you know. John and Raffi moved into a big house with a bunch of other young hippies in an area of Toronto called Cabbage Town. John says he taught Raffi a guitar technique called flat picking. He even got to know Raffi's Armenian heritage through the meals at the Kabukian home, where he remembers eating tabbouleh for the first time. John also saw how Raffi's parents had a different vision for their son's life. I think that he felt a certain tension because here he was this folky musician going on the world and, and all of us who decided to do music for a living, <laughs> that was the thing, was the living. There was a certain stress with the parents over that, certainly with my parents, uh, they didn't want me to do it. His folks weren't 100% behind on doing it. They were typical immigrant parents, they wanted the kids go to university, get a classic degree and uh, education and go into a, a bona fide business. I think his parents might have wanted him to go the photography thing too. As Rafi was finding his way as a folk musician, the pressure and pull from his parents continued. They didn't seem to understand that he had his own goals and dreams for his life. Rafi remembers a time in his early 20s when he sat for a portrait at Ardo's studio. My father had taken a beautiful color portrait of me, head and shoulders, and he had this abstract painting. I don't know who, who did the painting, but he he kind of took the two images and made a you know, a double exposure color print. And so there, there's my, you know, head and shoulders, but, you know, abstract colors all over the place and forms and so on. Ardo called it the indecision of youth. And I wouldn't say he called it that in a flattering way. So I was a little upset about it, but I also understood that that's how he saw me at the time. But I was exploring. I was excited. I was alive. I was, I was awake, you know. So do you think this portrait was your dad's reaction to just not understanding you? Well, he was struggling with the man I was becoming. Yeah, because it didn't go along the script that he would have wanted. I wasn't going to just say, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll work in your studio, Dad, you know, from now on. No, I was like on my own path. And that was hard for him because he had gone into his father's work after his father's death, even as he, uh, my father had taken his father's work and run with it, as in, you know, uh, pioneered in color portraiture, something his father never did. So we all have a duty to ourselves to, to grow our heart's yearnings, to, to put those yearnings into the expressions of who we are and how we might serve in society. Was it hard for you to go against your parents' expectations like that? Not at all. No, I, I knew that I needed to, you know, travel my own path. Decades later, Rafi wrote that perhaps his parents were culturally and personally incapable of seeing him as his own person, rather than as an extension of themselves. But he says Ardo's portrait does remind him of how tough his path towards discovering his authentic self actually was. Finding an identity free of the one his parents had dreamt up for him would take years.
For the first half of the 1970s, Raffi hitchhiked through Canada and the United States. He performed at a folk festival in Regina, busked in Banff, and played for six weeks in the lounge of a resort in Arkansas. He says it felt like he was enrolled in Life 101, learning how to live as a struggling folk singer and finding his own musical style. Then in 1975, Raffi took another chance. He'd seen how better paying gigs went to artists who had a recording contract. So he formed Troubadour Records, his own record company, and he signed his first artist, himself. And because he'd be a one-man record label, this would give him full control of his artistic vision. I've been a good Lord boy Most all of my life Never known much trouble I guess I've known where to hide Through Troubadour, he released his first album, Good Luck Boy, a folk album for adults. It's the album that featured Impressions of Armenia. There's a line in the title track that really sticks out to me. I'm feeling mighty high. I hope I start a trend. Feel like everything I've ever wanted was waiting round the bend. Feel like everything I ever wanted was waiting round the bend. And I mean, he wasn't wrong. Next time on Finding Raffi. The language in most children's albums at the time uh, didn't reflect anything. I mean, just, it just talked down to children as if they were all babies and idiots. We weren't going by any market research or anything. We were kind of winging it, you know, <laughs> having fun, including songs that we thought kids would enjoy singing. And that's what we did. Finding Raffi is a production of iHeartRadio and Fatherly in partnership with Rococo Punch. It's produced by Catherine Fenelosa, Meredith Honig, and James Trout. Production assistance from Charlotte Livingston. Alex French is our story consultant. Our senior producer is Andrea Aswahe. Emily Foreman is our editor. Fact-checking by Andrea Lopez Cruzado. Raffi's music is courtesy of Troubadour Records. Special thanks to Kim Layton at Troubadour. Our executive producers are Jessica Alpert and John Parati at Rococo Punch, Ty Trimble, Mike Rothman, and Jeff Eisenman at Fatherly, and me, Chris Garcia. Thank you for listening. Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good. But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh. Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I used to have so many men. How this beguiling woman in her 50s... She looked like a million bucks. ...scams a bunch of famous athletes out of untold fortunes... Nearly $10 million was all gone. It's just unbelievable. Hide your money in your old rich men, because <laughs> she is on the prowl. Listen to Queen of the Con, Season 5, The Athlete Whisperer, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.